Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. Joining us today is Dr. Stuart Slavin, MD, MED, and Senior Scholar for Wellbeing at the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. He joined the council in 2018 after working as the Associate Dean for Curriculum at St. Louis University, where he led efforts to improve the mental health of medical students that produced dramatic decreases in rates of depression and anxiety in pre-clerkship students. He has continued his work on mental health challenges facing adolescents and young adults by conducting assessments of student mental health in seven different school districts in California, Missouri, and here in Ohio. Today, he's here with us to talk a little bit about his work, as well as issues of perfectionism, depression, and anxiety in youth. Dr. Slavin, thank you for joining us. Uh, Pleasure to be with you. Excellent, excellent. So um, we'll just kick it off. Um, Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so so I'm actually a a pediatrician by training. Um, but much of my career has been um, in medical education uh, for about 20 years at UCLA and then on to St. Louis University, where I was um, uh, dean of curriculum, so overseeing the curriculum for medical students at St. Louis University. Very cool. Um, And so we know that you um, have done a little bit of research with uh, mental health decline in um, med, school, med school students. So what prompted you to start looking at that link between that mental health decline and medical school demands? Yeah, it's actually, it was a pretty surprising turn in my career. So I have a master's um, in education. And, and so my focus was really on curriculum. And, and the curriculum deans at medical schools generally don't worry about or it's not their concern to to worry about uh, mental health because we have student affairs deans who do that. But, oh, I guess about 2006, 2007, I started reading about medical student mental health and and how problematic it was. And I'd been at St. Louis U for about three years. And frankly, I looked at our students and, and overall they seemed really happy. I knew there were individual students who suffered and struggled. Um, but I thought that perhaps we'd created in the few years that I'd been there an environment where you know, where students were doing okay, and that led me. Um, the, my first foray into this work was to do a survey of medical students at St. Louis University, and uh, much to my disappointment and chagrin, the um, the results were terrible. Uh, they, they we looked like every other medical school. And uh, that first day I saw the results, uh, I just said, this is not okay. Um, you know, I felt, I felt responsible, you know, as the curriculum dean. Um, 
it seemed clear from the data because they looked good at orientation. And, you know, in the first year of medical school, their, their mental health declined. The only conclusion I could have was that we were doing this to them and uh, really embarked on some work to, um, to try to reduce uh, the, the poor mental health outcomes we were seeing. So what were some of the changes that you made and what were the outcomes of those changes? Yeah, this, you know, what we realized is a couple of things very early on. One was that, um, that this was an environmental problem. And, and a lot of the work then uh, that you saw at medical schools and a lot of the work you still see at medical schools focused as if the problem was the individual. So there was a lot of you know, work on meditation and yoga around the country and making sure there was good access to mental health care, all well and good, uh, but very little was being done to, uh, to try to influence the environment. So, so our first set of changes were trying to deal with stressors that the students identified as the biggest stressors in, the, in their lives. And then big stressors were the amount of information that we were forcing them to try and learn, um, the level of detail, and then competition for grades. So essentially we cut the curriculum uh, by 10%, uh, freed up hours and reduced content. Um, we created these um, elective opportunities so students could engage in things they cared about. Um, and then we, we changed to pass-fail grading in the first two years. So that was the first foray. And then the second was, was a really interesting one that I, I knew nothing about, uh, was then trying to give them skills individual skills that would essentially make them more resilient, that they would be able to manage those stresses with, with and, and not so suffer so much. Um, so after that, over the next few years, we made some other changes. Those were really the key changes though. And what was really exciting is um, we were able to reduce uh, anxiety and depression rates by 80 to 90%, which, which was really unprecedented. Um, so our, and uh, depression rates dropped from, you know, on average, about 30% um, uh, for first and second year students down to four to 6%. Anxiety rates dropped from 60% uh, down to the teens. Um, and it wasn't just that they were avoiding depression and anxiety, they were really flourishing. They were really thriving, which, which I think in retrospect, when I look at it, um, it was so easy to do, you know, and and um, it's a little bit heartbreaking that I still see schools not moving to these simple, simple kind of approaches. Can you um, touch on, because you talked about these drops in anxiety and depression, um, but can you touch on like the academic performance and how that looks? Oh, yeah, that's, that's the really sweet part, right? So we, we cut the curriculum by 10%. In a national survey, our, our students actually reported sleeping on average half an hour more per night than medical students on average and doing an hour and spending an hour and a half to two hours less per day in class or study. So, so right, their lives fundamentally different from medical students. And a big worry from the faculty was, oh, their academic performance is gonna drop, their, their board scores are gonna drop. And this is kind of the sweetest part is that, no, it actually improved. It improved. And I think this is a really important point for parents and teachers and kids out there. I think there's this fundamental belief that more is always better. More will lead to better outcomes. 
So if one hour of homework is good, then two hours better, and four hours, imagine what they could accomplish. It actually turns out there's no human endeavor, no human endeavor that you get, you know, endless improvement in outcomes by by making things, you know, increasing amounts of things. At a certain point, um, performance actually starts to level off and then decline. And so what we saw is is counterintuitively by backing off. Um, performance improved. Our board scores rose and the failure rate on the board exam, which is the big exam in medical school, uh, was half the national average. So we were, our students were outperforming what they should have done. And in some ways it's not surprising, right? Because if you're depressed or anxious and sleep deprived, you're not gonna perform as well academically. So yeah, that was the really lovely part of it, which um, I didn't have confidence was gonna occur, but was delighted to see that it occurred. <laughs> Over, the, over those years. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to think about the difference that we could make in just having some small little changes. Yeah, one of the things that, you're so right, Nancy. I mean, one of the things that was striking um, is our entire budget for everything we did um, was, was $3,000 a year, and it was mostly food for meetings. I mean, we didn't have to change the way we taught. We didn't have to have a massive, like, well-being curriculum. Our resilience curriculum across the four years was a total of four hours. You know, this wasn't like, oh, my gosh, we're going to do this huge social-emotional learning curriculum. No, we gave them just basic skills um, that I think fundamentally um, helped them look at themselves, their performance in medical school in a fundamentally different way than they ever had before. You know, and and to me, what's so intriguing about it is is those skills aren't um, they're all, they aren't specific to medical students. Like th these are life skills, and are particularly helpful skills, I think, for anybody along this kind of educational continuum, no matter where you're at. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So talk a little bit about how that progressed from there. You did the work at the medical school, but now you've done a lot of work with um, with high schools across the country. Yeah, I think there are a couple of forces that that got me interested in in high school students and adolescents. <clears throat> the um, um, one uh, is I'm a pediatrician, and even though I'm not practicing, it was like I like I still it's in my DNA to care about kids. Right, they're our most vulnerable. They're really um, subject to what we you know the cultures we create and, and the conditions we create as well. So, so that was one factor. But the more proximate one was watching my daughters go through high school um, in St. Louis. Um, and, and what I saw, uh, they were in um, probably the most progressive high school in St. Louis, a wonderful school in so many ways. But the one thing that they did not get right uh, was uh, the amount of homework. The academic pressure and amount of homework was just was unreasonable. Um, and my daughters suffered. They. I mean, they both suffered significantly. I was actually on the school board and and this was in the midst of my work at, at St. Louis U. And I, I was like, so I went to them and said, like, these are the results. We need to do this. And um, and I lost. I lost. I wasn't able to get them to change. And and I, I kind of say jokingly, and I'm bitter. <laughs> and so, so I was like, like I said, if I can't do it there, I'm going to use my position um, 
uh, to work on it on it wherever I can find people who, who will bring me in. And and in my current position, I work for an organization called the ACGME that in, is involved in in residency education um, and overseeing residency education. And when I joined them two years ago, one of the things I said, I'll, I'll take the job, but but only if you give me like 15 percent time to work on adolescent health. And they said, yeah, I mean, because I my, ultimately what I said to them was was that if you care about resident mental health and medical student mental health, we got to work upstream because because they're coming to us damaged by the educational culture and continuum before them. So they fortunately said yes. Um, and so it's allowed me to do this work um, that I started when I was at St. Louis U, but now really continuing now that I'm at the ACGME. I was um, a teacher prior to this. And oh, wow suburban school that is pretty, you know, the academic pressures are real. The yeah. parents are very college only, um, yes. which I understand coming from a college family background. Um, but yeah, some of the teachers and uh, they're my coworkers, they're my friends. I love them dearly. But telling a kid every night, if you take this AP class, you're going to have an hour of homework times four classes is unrealistic. It's, um, it's completely unrealistic. And, <laughs> and we've set up an environment in many schools across this country. I think it used to be much more of a problem, say, 10 years ago of the super elite, you know, high schools, the, you know, the, the suburban and urban, you know, highfalutin, you know, neighborhoods and the, and the private schools. But my sense is, no, this is, this is everywhere. I don't think it's in the rural and urban underserved. I think that's a, a different environment, but, but I think this is growing. And honestly, I, I think that it is uh, contributing substantially to the decline in mental health we're seeing nationally. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people um, with loud voices who say, no, it's, you know, it's social media, it's smartphones, it's, you know, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that plays a role, but, but the research I've been doing with schools I've looked at, it's, it's school and school culture. And, and we have hard evidence now to, to, to show that. Can you talk a little bit about that evidence, what you've seen across the country at high schools? Yeah, my first uh, series were, were um, a school here in Missouri, a Catholic girls' school. And then uh, I, I looked at, what, five high schools in California. And then uh, most recently in Ohio, in suburban, suburban districts there. And, and what I found were um, depression and anxiety levels uh, that far exceeded medical school, which to me, I mean, we have alarm about how the medical students are doing um, and, and it's worse. You know, I was going to write an essay, I still should try to do it, that, that, um, that high school is harder than medical school at many high schools right now. And something is really fundamentally wrong. We've lost our way. If you have like 14 to 18 year olds working harder and sleeping less than students in med school. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the problem here, which, which makes it difficult to unwind, is that people buy into this, well, that's what you need to keep up. That's what you need not only to get into a, to college, that's what you need to get into the best college possible. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that drive which I understand as a pediatrician, I think, you know, I look at this and I say, you know, parents and teachers are doing what they think is best for the kids. Um, but, but the evidence we have 
is it's not. I mean, if you look at, at kids holistically, you know, not just academic achievement and look at their mental health and well-being um, and avoidance of suicide, you know, we're, we're, we're not doing well. So, so there's a kind of a wake-up call that, that I'm hoping that people will start to recognize while, while I honor their motivation. What we need to look at is let's look at the evidence. And, and um, you know, we, we are. We're harming our kids. And, and it, one more thing that I have to say, I think in this, as I've been at some communities and interacted with teachers and, and parents and students, sometimes we can devolve into like this finger-pointing. Like the teachers will go, oh, it's these parents. They're driving, pushing us, et cetera. And then the parents are like, oh, it's the teachers. And then the kids are like, oh, it's everybody, you know? <laughs> and I think as we try to solve this problem, what we need to realize, we're all co-creators of this. You know, it, there's, there, there's no real villains in this. And, and so what we need to do, I think, is work collectively to try to address the problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you just, we just recently did some work in Cincinnati. Um, uh, Their mind piece in one in five has a, um, what we call the brain health network. It's about 14 suburban schools coming together at the principal level um, to talk about mental health issues. And um, you've been doing some education with us and we're doing some work there. But when we looked at some of the um, some of the outcomes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that we've started to talk about um, that will help in the situation? Sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, one thing I have to start with, though, is I'm immensely grateful uh, to One in Five and Mindpiece to, to kind of um, broker the connections with the high schools we work with there. I think the network that you all have is just fantastic, and I think it feels like a, a little bit of a one one in one of a kind. So. Um, I want to make sure I say that. Um, and the findings, um, yeah, were, were concerning and uh, deeply concerning. Um, I have to say they weren't, uh, the mental health outcomes weren't as bad as the ones that I saw in these California districts, but they were still what I would view as unacceptable with, with really high rates of depression and, and anxiety. Um, the, the, the pieces in our survey that we have a, a kind of a a well-designed survey at this point and, and um, using very well-validated scales for depression and anxiety. Those we you know, don't create ourselves, but we've created other parts of the, of the survey that, that, um, that are, I think, really telling in terms of, of figuring out what the drivers are. And, and they, they really just look at potential stressors in, in students' lives. Um, and have them rate them like this is a great stressor and doesn't stress me at all. And, and these can be academic stressors, you know, things like social media, cyberbullying, conflict with family, problems with boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, it, social issues, financial issues, uh, drug or alcohol issues, a whole range of, of things. And basically what we found, um, uh, oh, and two, two others that we, or one other that we asked about too is, is a scale that looks at something called maladaptive perfectionism, where it, you know it's it's kind of just a fancy way of of, of saying you know, it's setting the bar so high for yourself that you're repeatedly disappointed in yourself. And so, looking at those stressors, um, in addition to the depression and anxiety scales, and then looking at the maladaptive perfectionism scales, um, we were able to 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 
kind of create a picture of, of what was going on in these kids' heads and, and what was stressing them out. And I'm sorry, I realized one other thing that's really critically important. We asked them how much time they spent in different activities. So again, I said we have very high rates of depression and anxiety. I'll talk about the time spent. Um, and Nancy, may, you may need to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, but, um, but one really alarming finding was that on weeknights, um, the students reported um, half of them, more than half, just over half, reported getting less than seven hours of sleep a night. Um, that's, they're supposed to be getting nine to nine and a half hours. That sleep deficit itself will create um, problems with mental health. Uh, they they are, are both cognitively and emotionally compromised at that point. So just the sleep issue was huge. Um, and, and part of it is, and I think I've got this right, Nancy, is that, that um, students on average, the average student was spending um, just under five hours on homework and kind of extracurricular activities. Yep. So you combine that with school and there's like no time. There's not time for fun. There's not time for relaxation. There's in my kid's life. There was barely time for dinner, you know, and then... I mean, I think many kids are working harder than their parents. You know, if you look at weekend work plus, I mean, you're talking like 70 hour work weeks. Yep. So, so just the sheer amount of time people spent was, was huge. And then the stressors though was, was really interesting, which was the number one stressor. We asked them about pressure from all sorts of people, pressure from parents, pressure from teachers, you know, from coaches, et cetera. The number one stressor of all the stressors uh, was pressure from self. So what these kids are doing is internalizing these, these messages they're getting from everybody and putting enormous pressure on themselves, um, not only just to succeed in high school, but to excel, you know, to be at the top. You know, um, and and so that driver, I think, is is profound. Of course, they were also stressed by the amount of homework they had, uh, time pressure, uh, things like that. But a lot of the social ones were really not big drivers of distress. And one of the lowest rated uh, was social media and cyberbullying. Yeah, for certain individuals, it's a big factor. But if you look at the population as a whole, it's not it's not what is is making our kids ill. It's it's the school environment and the mindsets they've created. And sorry to cleanse so long, but the last thing is this mindset, this maladaptive perfection perfectionism. What we found is unbelievable correlations. If you screened positive for maladaptive perfectionism, and basically the higher the score for maladaptive perfectionism you had. Um, uh, the higher rate of, of the higher the risk of depression and anxiety. So it's this combination of what we're doing to these kids, and then these mental models of I've got to be perfect. If I don't, if I'm not perfect, if I don't have a 4.0 average, if I don't get all these AP courses, um, I'm not going to get into the best college possible, and then my life will be forever compromised. That's kind of the narrative they're creating in their heads. And what's saddest about it is it's a false narrative. Like getting into it, it, like there's a profound evidence that where you go to college, if you indeed go to college, you know, is going to not have a significant impact on, on your trajectory in life. It's, it's more who you are and what you bring to college. So, so it's this mythical, you know, pursuit of this, you know, 
wonderful future that's going to open up if you kind of you know win the race that is 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 a fake prize you know and and so yeah my my hope is that we'll start to dismantle it and i would be thrilled if cincinnati schools <laughs> led the way you know and and what i imagine back to your comment before Aaron, is i you know i really do think um, if, if you make the same kind of changes in high school that you did in med schools, not only will their mental health improve, uh, I, I, I'm almost certain their academic performance won't decline and it'll probably get better because mm -hmm. their brains will be rested. They will be happy, you know, and, and they will learn better. So that was a really long answer. <laughs> I have gone that long, but there's a lot to tell you and it's, and and it's all really important stuff as we try to figure out how are we going to confront this problem, you know? There's a lot of moving pieces. I remember I had um, people come in, friends of mine come in and talk about their career path just to give the kids different ideas outside of your typical doctor, lawyer, you know, whatever. Um, and one of the individuals said to them, honestly, nobody asks me where I went to college anymore because I already had a job and they want to know what did I do in that job? What skills did I gain? And then after that first job, nobody asked me about that first job. Now, now they want to know my next yeah. job. So it doesn't actually matter because nobody even cares now that I'm four or five years removed. Absolutely. And, and for parents who are skeptical or teachers are skeptical, there's a great book by Frank Bruni called Where You Go is Not Who You'll Be. I think that's the title. I hope I yep. got that right. Yep, that's it. Which, yeah, which basically has evidence, right? This is, there's, strong evidence um, that, yeah, the college you, you go to, you know, you don't have to go to the Ivies or the most, you know, elite colleges to thrive in, in this world. And frankly, for some kids, you don't have to go to college. College may be the wrong choice or especially maybe the wrong choice right out of high school. So, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think what we have to help parents realize is we need a more holistic view of what, what is good for our kids. And, and it's not just academic achievement. It's not just the grade point average and SAT scores that we should be caring about um, because it's, it's costing our kids' mental health in the process. And the thing that people forget is that there's so many amazing two-year programs that exist that still allow you to further your education and thrive in this world. No question. And that's, a, you know, the kind of community college path that's, that many people look down on is, is really an interesting and potentially a great choice for some, which is, and, and it can get you some education, but it can also be a springboard to a four-year college too. Those credits count. So, um, you know, we, we have this culture though that celebrates like the elites in, and, and gives them um, value that in many ways is not earned. You know, that's the reality. So what would you tell parents that are worried about their children's academic achievement? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And and there's there's part of me that says it's not just academic achievement we should be worrying about, right? It, 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 yeah, be concerned about academic achievement. Um, sometimes what I'll see, and in, in, in this is a generality, is, is I think what sometimes happens, and certainly with my daughters, when you see this heavy academic load and a lot of academic pressure, a lot of times it's girls 
will like do everything they can to meet all the expectations. And the, and more often the boys will kind of say, screw this. Like, I, like, like, uh, like a 14-year-old boy is not meant to sit in a class for eight hours and then do four hours of homework. And, and so unfortunately, what they'll do is they'll kind of give up and, and then kind of often get into a path of, of, of risk-taking behavior and, and delinquency and conflict with families. And so one thing I say is, you know, these, this, these pressures that we put on kids, it isn't just the kids who are suffering with this. The, the parents are too, you know, because, you know, gosh, when you have a stressed out, anxious or depressed kid, it has an impact on the whole family. Right. So so I think that's a really important message is, yeah, be concerned about achievement, but don't if that's your only focus, um, it's going to be a it's going to be a dangerous place. Um, and 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 we have to be careful not just to with the direct pressure we put on our kids. It's the indirect pressure. If you know, pressure from parents um, was actually a lower rated stressor than pressure to not disappoint my parents. Isn't that fascinating, right? So even if you're not saying, oh, you gotta get straight A's, they know what your values are. And if they know, yeah, you really care about the elites, you know, we want you to get into the best college possible. Even if you're not like putting that direct pressure on, you know, then they're, they, they may feel significant pressure anyway. So again, back to this issue of, um, I think, um, achievement. No, it's achievement and, and balanced with, with uh, well-being um, and, and, and good health and, and joy and, and finding, uh, I don't know, purpose and meaning in your life in some way. That's what I think you want. Um, I think ultimately we can help parents realize that, that no, they want their kids to be happy ultimately, right? It, it isn't, and that path isn't just through, you know, straight A's at, and at it's, school, it's, um, that makes sense. It's interesting that you talked about how, like, girls are more likely to uh, want to be able to do everything, because, um, I mean, obviously, like, I'm a girl, um, yeah. and I, I remember, like, feeling that pressure and that same pressure to, like, not disappoint my parents, like, in high school, I feel like I wanted to do everything. I was that, that person who was like taking as many APs as I could. And it was like, basically like, I also had that same pressure. My parents basically were like, if you don't get a a scholarship, you're not going to college. (laughs) Um, but it wasn't so much like you need to get straight A's. It was more like you need to go to college and this is how you do it. Um, so that's just, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I do feel for that economic driver, mm-hmm. which is, it's a reality for people and scholarships matter. Um, but we also have to balance it with, with, again, the mental health, your kid gets a scholarship, but they end up going to a school um, and, and get profoundly depressed or suicidal you know, or, or engaged in, you know, self-harm behavior or eating disorder or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, at a certain point, it's not worth the price that, the, the, you know, the, the toll that it's taking. Um, the other thing is I'm thinking about this too, uh, this, this question about how parents kind of should engage with their kids. 
one of the things that's been striking in my job, I, I travel all over the country giving talks mostly to medical audiences, but I talk to parents a lot, right? Um, um, and and um, one of the really profound messages, and I got this in Cincinnati when I visited and, and talked to the teachers and parents there, is this isn't just a high school issue. This is a middle school issue. This is down to grade school issues now. Where, where, you know, there, there are teachers who told me, yeah, I have like a six, you know, I teach first and second graders and they're, and they're kids who are crying if they get a B or, you know, on a, on a math test, you know, so these messages are, are, are being driven earlier and earlier and the pressures that parents are getting is like, oh my gosh, I've got to get my kid into the honors math, you know, track in the second grade, or they're going to be behind or, or I've got to get my seven-year-old, um, a soccer, you know, a soc soccer lesson so they can make the elite team. Um, this is infiltrating the lives of our, our of our younger kids in ways that really is alarming. So, so this isn't something you need to start thinking about when they're teenagers. This you got to think about early on, and 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 it's tricky because, like, I knew all of this stuff, and what's still really hard is I couldn't protect my kids from the culture. The culture was screaming at them, you gotta get into the elite colleges, et cetera, et cetera. You know, et cetera. So, so um, the other thing I think parents have to do is they need to be advocates. They need to become advocates for, for culture change, for, for environmental change at their schools. And one of the reasons I think they haven't is when you look at your kid and they're depressed or anxious, it's super easy to go to the idea that, oh, the problem is with my kid. No, I mean, just like the California schools, just to say 80% of the students, 80% had moderate to high levels of anxiety. And it wasn't that high in Cincinnati schools, but a, a majority of kids were suffering from a, a diagnosable you know, mental health problem. That isn't a problem with the kids at that point. <laughs> that's a uh, that's a problem with what we're doing to them. So a really strong message is that people need to start advocating for change, um, reasonable change. I mean, uh, you know, as as Nancy, you said, this is like multifaceted piece, and there are like many moving parts. But this, the fixes that I instituted were ultimately really simple to to implement. You know, really simple to implement. Um, it's funny that you say that because when I was teaching, a parent group came in to work with some students on a project. And one of the parents talked about his daughter, who was now older, but at the time was going into third grade and was stressed out because of the third grade reading guarantee. Yeah. And she was crying because she was like, I'm not going to be able to pass third grade if I can't get my reading score up. And it's like, you're putting that pressure on an eight-year-old. It is. What does that say about us? Yeah, and I don't know what's going on in Cincinnati's school too with this, but but the other that I see was a big proliferation of 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 work that's supposed to be done over breaks. Like, no, you come back from summer and you're supposed to have like you know a ten page essay about something, or have read you know this book and and have like chapter outlines for it or or over christmas or thanksgiving no like kids need their time they that that's why they're called breaks you know and we shouldn't be assigning um we need to give kids their lives back 
you know that and uh, it's it's so critically important it was um like that therapist we were just talking about before the work of children is play um and we're not allowing and creating that space and that mm-hmm. is a detriment to their overall well-being and we're seeing it no question and what we're squeezing out just in 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 particularly at the, the older grades too is is not just play um but curiosity yep. the idea of reading for pleasure yep. one of the worst outcomes my older daughter had after high school she did not read a book for pleasure for three years. She'd lost that drive. Mm-hmm. It's like to have that extinguished by the educational system. Like learning should be a joy overall. Learning should be like satisfying, fulfilling. And, and we're, we're driving them out of this. And, and I bet kids and teachers and and. and you know, and parents will all understand that some of the educational outcomes, um, and, and, you know, Kayla, you too may feel this way. If you're racing through these AP courses, yeah, you can learn it for this, the exam on Friday or the AP exam, you know, at the end of the year, but a couple yeah. months later, like, like half of it's gone. Right. So what's the, what's the value of, of yeah. stuffing, stuffing, stuffing so much into your brain when you aren't going to retain it? So it's, you know, people talk about a curriculum that's a mile, you know, wide and an inch deep, you know, um, the, even the educational outcomes, I think, are an illusion. That, and that's, again, you could almost say, OK, if, you, if these really led to better educational outcomes, like maybe it would be worth it. I, I don't think so. But I don't even think right. this is leading to better educational outcomes. Yeah, I yeah. really don't. Yeah, I don't think so either. The resilience piece, I think, is something I'm going to be doing. um a webcast and and uh, hopefully um, either a video or a podcast about this as well is um, it's a lot of it's really simple, which is is helping kids develop tools to examine their own thinking, to be able to see their perfectionism, to look at things where they view as per, their their academic performance as their identity. Right. So it's like I not I got this score. I am this score and they can learn these tools. No question in high school, probably earlier. And and um, and I think it's a really important piece to add into the environmental changes as well. So I look forward to working with you, Nancy, on that, making that available for kids and, and, and for parents teachers alike, um, because that's, that's such an in, important in, ingredient in, in, in potential fixes to this problem. Well, Stuart's talking about our um, State of Mind speaker series, which is available out on our website. It's a, it's a partnership with One in Five and MindPeace, and there are quite a lot of resources out there. There are videos, and then we're also doing um, webinars that people are um, doing further education about really relevant topics for our current, our current situation. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yeah. It's really, like you said, it's complicated work. It's not just do this and fix it. It's so many layers and changing culture. And I do get a little overwhelmed since I have little kids. Uh, my oldest is six and he's already talking about being a failure. Wow. Um, no, Aaron, seriously, isn't it? I mean, that's a change in this world for a six yeah. year old to be thinking of like, of, of, even using the word failure, the yeah. things have just fundamentally changed in this world. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm sure you're not a parent who's putting that pressure on, right? No, I, and and yeah. so, so that's going to be another, is, is trying to figure out how to talk to your kids about achievement in a way that, you know, isn't just like, oh, that's ridiculous. Don't think that way. You know, that, you know, and trying to figure out how to message that in developmentally appropriate ways that, you know, I think is a a really important piece as well. I uh, downloaded, Nancy and Kayla heard me talking about this, but I downloaded this, my friend who's a school psychologist recommended it because she's using it in her classroom. It's called Big Life Journal. Um, And there's a kit, it's a self-esteem and confidence kit. Um, and there's just like all these different little games and tidbits we can use to help like validate where he's feeling, yes. but then work on that's okay. So like, yeah. and then moving from that fix to growth mindset. Yes. Oh, growth mindset but, is a really big piece of this yeah. too. Yeah. So there are a whole array of mindsets that can come into play that, that I'll be talking about in my presentation, um, that'll be available elsewhere. So, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, there's just lots of resources out there for, to make changes in your, but again, that cultural piece, that that societal piece is really challenging. And it's true. And you know what? It's really very interesting that, that, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the fixes, the structural changes really are not that difficult. It's more of a political challenge to get teachers on board. I mean, one of the fixes has to be we need to reduce the amount of homework that kids are given and and coaches can't have four hour practices or drama teachers can't have like four hour rehearsals, you know, five days a week. That's that's not okay. And and so politically getting that um, done is is a challenge. Um, The harder one is the culture. But I do believe, you know, and I've worked with with people before is is you know i think we can tell a story that that people realize like wow what we're doing is just is really harming our kids and it isn't in the best interest of their kids and 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 really honoring their parents um commitment to to doing what they think is best for their kids they're acting in good faith i think but but they're they may not be seeing um, kind of the adverse consequences that 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 come from that approach, right? So yeah, culture it's it's huge. The culture is incredibly important, and and it will take time. But I am I'm still optimistic. I I really do believe change is possible. And what I hope is that Cincinnati will lead the way. <laughs> As a good Midwesterner, I'm like tired of all these innovations coming from California or New York. So, so it's time for the Midwest to step up and lead the nation. How about that? Is it, is well, we're going to try awesome. awfully hard to do that. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, great. So, um, but yeah, and then the policy change is important too because you know the teachers ha- can need to adapt, but also the way in which we measure teacher outcomes has to be adjusted yeah. because there were, you know, like you were saying, we're all pointing fingers, but it, it is that system level change. There right? is. It, um, it, you're exactly right, Erin, that it's multiple levels. Here and 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 policy, you know, I've talked to some people who've said, you know, we should be thinking about, you know, we had child labor laws before, like like you know, decades ago. You know, we should mm-hmm. think about child labor laws for our, our kids, you know, yeah. work week. Full work, yeah. You know, that, like um, when our kids are this sleep deprived, it's like something needs to give. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we need to take action and it's gonna be at multiple levels. And there's no way one group can do this. 
right? Parents can't fix this alone. Teachers can't fix this alone. Administrators can't alone. They all need to be involved. And actually, kids themselves are going to need to be part of it as well. You know, so, yeah, we we all need to work together. No question. Well, Stuart, thank you for being with us today. We so um, appreciate all of your knowledge and wisdom and and work that you're doing in this space. And I know that I personally really look forward to working with you on this project in Cincinnati. Yeah, likewise, Nancy. Thank you for um, having me. And Kayla and Aaron, I'm glad you were able to participate today. And yes, I I absolutely um, look forward to working with you all uh, as we try to try to make these these changes. So yeah, thanks for for, um, inviting me today. A pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we are changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time.